0: Hello everyone, Um, oh wow, lively crowd in the front row. Um, We are in a series on the parables, Uh, it's entitled the parables of the kingdom because we're looking at how, we want to consider how we live as disciples as part of this kingdom and one of the chief ways Jesus spoke and taught the kingdom was through the parables so far, the parables we've taught, this is worth three weeks, into, this is the fourth week, so we've done three weeks. So far, it's been at a very high level and the way it's been presented. Uh, first week, I did the parable of the sower, which looks at the kingdom and how it goes forth, both in the word being sp- uh, sowed into people, this word that Jesus proclaims, and how it's going to go forth inevitably bearing fruit despite the differing reactions it's going to get amongst the people of the world. Then Terry followed up the next week and spoke from the parable of the two valuable things being found. He talked about the parable of the treasure buried in the field, and the parable of the pearl of great priced, priced price. And in both cases, you have something that's valuable that's found. You see a kingdom that is worth something. You see a kingdom that, when people see it and they recognize its value, they give what they have to get it, and they are benefited on the other side. And then last week he spoke from the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is almost the one that takes the furthest back view, and talks about how despite the kingdom of God truly coming into this world, because there are other forces at work in this world, we are going to see mixed results for the rest of this age. We will not see the kingdom in an undiluted form in this world, not this side of Jesus' return. Those have all been kind of very high-level views of the kingdom. If the kingdom was a country, we'd be at the level of, like, uh, if it was Germany, for example, we'd have learned about the GDP of Germany. We might have read some of the history of Germany. We could know the contours of its border, that it's sitting over there in Europe. We might even know they speak German. But what we haven't gotten into is what it would mean to go to Germany, what it would be like to live in Germany, what it would be like to be German. Um, to eat that food, to think like a German. Um, and the parables we are moving into now are moving in that direction. We're going to start looking at parables of what it means to live in the kingdom. This week, we're looking at one of the most famous of the parables. It's, um, it's probably one of the two most famous. Uh, and if I rule out the Good Samaritan, you, a lot of you have already guessed which one it is. So it doesn't need much introduction. I just want to dive directly into the text. This is in Luke 15, starting at the very beginning of the chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is Jesus. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Who sent him into his field to feed the pigs? And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, it's obviously three parables that we're covering this week. Um, They all deal with something that was lost and then is subsequently found. And in preparing for this, I, to some extent, I just wanted to get out of the way as much as possible, so I don't have a 95-part sermon with a lot of subparts, as I might be more prone to do. But what I want to do is read back through the text of this passage, similar to the way Shelley read it, and just make comments as we go, drawing out what Jesus is trying to get at here. But in a large way, just trying to let the parable speak for itself. That's it. When I get to the end of the text, I don't have another sermon. One read through and we're done. But I do have comments. I actually want to back up two verses to capture the end of the second, the chapter before this as we go into it, just because there's something that had to be intentional and it's too good not to catch. So starting in verse 34 of chapter 14, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes (laughs) grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. These parables are found in the portion of Luke where Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. The way Luke is set up is the first Roughly half of the book through about the halfway through the ninth chapter focuses in Galilee. It's Jesus doing the big miracles, it's Jesus doing the teachings on the big level of the kingdom. It's him talking about the kingdom. And then midway through chapter nine, his disciples make the announcement: You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised king, the one we have been waited, waiting for, who is going to rescue and restore Israel. They come to that realization. And Jesus being Jesus immediately tells them he's going to die, they're going to kill him, and he's going raise, to be raised on the third day. And then it says he turns his face towards Jerusalem, and he starts traveling to Jerusalem. That's midway in chapter 9. And basically through the 18th chapter or so, Jesus is just heading to Jerusalem. He's walking towards his death, repeatedly telling his disciples he's going to be killed and rise again. And while he's going, he tells them, what this life of the kingdom is going to be? What it is going to mean to be his disciples? What the expectations for how they're going to live is? We we get away from kind of the what of the kingdom and into the how of the kingdom in these chapters. The chapter that follows this one immediately is where you get the unjust servant and Lazarus the rich man. It's a parable about how we it's about how we use our resources, and the one that in beginning. Proceeds. chapter 14 so chapter 15 which is chapter 14 is about discipleship it's about the call of discipleship and it's about the cost of discipleship and that's where you get this ending passage that salt is good um, apparently salt had some use on manure which i don't understand because i didn't live back then but it did but it's If salt has not, if these disciples have not taken on this distinctive lifestyle of the disciple, if they aren't displaying what this kingdom is, it has no use. And then Jesus ends with that line that he uses again and again that we discussed on Thursdays. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And when he's saying hear, hear, he's not meaning simply audibly let words in. Our ears don't work that way. You don't close your ears the way you close your mouth. If you say talk, you're saying to do something, to open and act. When you say hear, you're not saying actively open your ear holes so the sound waves can make it in. You're saying hear the way I say listen to my daughter. When I say listen to my daughter, I don't mean audibly hear my voice. I mean audibly hear my voice, understand the words that are coming out of it, and go put them into practice. Listen to me. Put your scooter away. Don't take a trip down the road and then come back later which might or might not have just happened. So what he's saying here is, those of you who have ears, which are all of you, use them to listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying if you're going to be my disciple and put it into place, which makes the opening of chapter 15 really funny. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. He goes to Israel and he says, You need to hear me. You need to really hear me if you're going to be my disciples. And the people who Luke immediately has coming near to hear him are tax collectors and sinners. And we need to understand who these people are if we're going to understand what's going on in this chapter. Tax collectors are the people who are collecting money for Rome. Israel at this time has been invaded repeatedly for centuries. They have basically been passed around the Mediterranean and currently Rome is the people who are ruling over them and the way Rome works is it puts tax collectors from the local population it appoints people in that population to go around and collect money for it the way these people make their own money is they just get to skim off the top if i was a tax collector i would go around collecting the 10 dollars i owe rome for each of you but i would collect 12 from each of you and i would make 2 dollars ahead so these are people who have of these are Israelites who have sided themselves with the reigning oppressive power and are making money off of it. This is not a popular bunch in Israel, but it's a bunch that's doing well financially. And then you have sinners, which is a fantastic catch-all phrase. These are people who at this point have taken on a lifestyle that has willfully walked away from a faithful adherence to God's law. It's a very broad category. It's basically people who have do something, chosen to not follow God's ways and are following after their own pleasure in some sense. So we have two groups. You have a group that is aligned with the reigning authoritative power against Israel. And you have a group that's kind of seen as corrupting Israel from the inside because they're choosing a destitute lifestyle. Not destitute, a vagrant lifestyle. These are the groups that are coming here to Jesus to hear them. And because of this, the scribes and the Pharisees grumble. Terry asked on Sunday um, what we were getting out of the parables, and I was too tired to really have a conversation. I'm sorry. He asked on Thursday. He was too tired to have a conversation that night. I'd worked 11 hours that day. And... But the funny thing is, out of the parable, so far, I haven't been struck that much. What has struck me in my preparation for this is the propensity of people to grumble in the presence of Jesus. And this is a complete sidebar to this sermon. But it is, that's where I've been convicted. I don't really sit around and just outright disobedience, running my own ways, saying, screw you, God, I'm going the way I want to go. Instead, I grumble as I... Try to be obedient. And I grumble not only in that aspect, my own with God, but I grumble around my relationship with Becca. I grumble in my relationship with my kids. I grumble and grumble and grumble, thinking I'm doing a pretty good job because I'm following through on the right path, but the grumbling's there. So that's what they do. The Pharisees and the scribes don't get up and launch an attack on Jesus. They've already decided they want to kill him, but they aren't here launching an attack on Jesus. They're just grumbling because he does it. And we need to know who the Pharisees and the scribes are. At this time, the Pharisees, and this is a magnificent oversimplification, the Pharisees would be one of the main social, political, religious, because it's all kind of combined at this time, sects within uh, Israel. It is a group that has taken to a rather, I can't even go into all the context. There's a group that's taken to a rather, they want to interpret and follow the law very strictly and clearly. They have an oral, passed on tradition of interpreting the law, which they also expect people to follow. But they are a people that is looking towards a restoration of Israel. They want to call and see Israel restored two of faithfulness, as they are seeing what faithfulness should be. They are not the, pe- the people who are mostly aligned with the political power, that would be another group, but they also do have a great deal of influence on the common everyday people of Israel through their influence in the temple, which is largely found through the scribes. The scribes is a group that is a, it's like an official role. It's a, these are the people who are interpreting and teaching the law. The Archetype of the scribe is my son's namesake Ezra. He is a person who comes. He came to Israel when they returned to the land to teach them the law to tell them what it meant to help them apply it to their lives and teach it. So that's the scribes. And while not every scribe was a Pharisee, a lot of them were and it was the way the Pharisees exerted influence. So you have scribes and Pharisees, which kind of combines into this group, both official and unofficial that are opposed to Jesus. Because they have a vision for how this is supposed to be restored, and he keeps walking the wrong way on it. Again, massive oversimplification, but just to give you some context. Now, we, through our, if you've been in church for a long time, you've been taught that the way this reads is boo, Pharisees, ah, oh, sinners. And you have. but we can't let our distance from this text make that so easy for us. We will miss some of the import of this text if we don't see that the Pharisees have a point. When you think of a tax collector, don't think IRS. I mean, we don't love the IRS, but we do. no one really gets that angry at the IRS. I hope not. I mean, if you are, you're probably the person who yells at customer support, too, when you need help. But, so don't think IRS, because you're, think about more of a person who has moved themselves into a position of power for personal gain. Think of a grifter politician who has lowered some safety regulation because it puts money in their pocket. Stretch your minds. Think of a, I know, it gets worse. Think of a leader who's cozied up to some current administration and just sold out their values, because they know what this person can get for them at the cost of others. Just comb through your feelings, and you can picture these people. We know who these people are in America. Each of us might have a different set of them, but we all have a feeling of who these people are. We, these are people who we think are actively hurting our communities, actively hurting the people we care about. And then hear the Pharisees saying, we'd probably be better off without them. Or don't think about some abstract, harmless center who only existed back in Israel. Think about the people who would be tempting your children with drugs. Think about the person who broke into your house and stole your television. Think about the people who make it so you don't want to walk around your neighborhood at night often. Think about the people who are you see as active, corrupting influences on the people who you care about. And again, hear the Pharisees when they say, we'd probably be better off without them." This is the crux of the issue in this um, passage. Jesus is the solution. He's presenting himself as the Messiah. He is the one who is coming to answer the issues of Israel. And these are the people who are the issues of Israel. And he doesn't only not just openly, constantly rebuke them but he receives them warmly. And even worse, he dines with them. He takes them in and he eats meals with them. And this, was, this is a mark of acceptance in this culture. It's a mark of acceptance in our culture. I mean, imagine if you had a high-ranking political official who openly dined with terrible people, racists and horrible people on a regular basis. Yeah, I, this is, this would have been really easier to do, like, th- never mind. Or imagine a politician who openly dined with porn stars and other horrible people on a regular basis. I couldn't... I know, this isn't... I struggle with these examples. (laughs) So imagine if a respected leader, a person who you respected and you looked up to and you thought was a person who you could follow after, somebody who you trusted, somebody who you feel like you are a part of an oppressed people. You are a people who have people who are hurting you out there. And you have this person who has come who you actually do respect, who's coming in a good position, and they go to these people and they just start eating with them. They don't explain to you why, they just start dining with them. This is a person you actually care about and you want, you believe this person has come to solve your problem and they go directly to the person who did you harm. And they have a nice meal with them. And they might talk about their vision for this world, what can happen in this country. They might speak some inspirational things, but they don't give the blistering rebuke you think needs to happen. our response and oppressed people's response is, do they know who that person is? Or even worse, do they know and not care? That's what Jesus is doing in the eyes of the Pharisees. He's taking the people who are causing trouble for Israel. He's taking the people who have sided with the oppressed power and are actively hurting the people in their community. And he's having them over for dinner. He's taking the people who are actively corrupting Israel, who are seen as the people who are dragging this down, who are seen as the people in this remember, They have a view of a corporate sin that we lack. So we have a people who are sinning and getting God angry about, at all of us. And Jesus is just having him over for dinner, yet he presents himself as the Messiah. They're saying either, they're basically saying he's a liar. He cannot be who he says he is if he's doing this. And we have to admit that we have this pharisaical tendency within us. The easiest way to stoke that tendency is to pretend like it exists out there and that Pharisees are just people who have some weird, inborn, bigoted issues that they have out there that we don't have here. And that it's not something that is actually, that there's not a spiracy, spirit of the Pharisees that actually is based on sometimes really reading what's going on. Because the question isn't, is there a problem here? It's what to do about it. These people are causing an issue. They really are causing an issue for Israel. The place where they differ with, the place where the real issue with Jesus is, is what is he going to do about it? What should Jesus do here? WWSD is the basic question here for the Pharisees. They want to know why he's doing this, and they don't feel like he should. So they grumble. They're grumbling because he's embracing the enemy and he doesn't seem to want to fix it. So Jesus responds with a parable. He looks at them. So he told them this parable. This is addressed to the Pharisees and scribes. There is a multitude hearing it, but he told them. The them here is the Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Right out of the gate, Jesus pushes them back on their heels. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of scholars, essentially. And the first thing he says to them is, which one of you being a shepherd would have a sheep being missing and go out to get it. It's like addressing a bunch of CEOs and opening your discussion with, so which one of you, when you're driving your dump truck in the morning, doesn't stop at a stop sign? They're basically going, they're torn between being thrown off guard because he's brought them down. Shepherds were not um, a despised group, but this is a lower rung of society, he's basically taking the top rung and saying, which of you being one of these people wouldn't go after the sheep? Because they have to admit, yeah, you'd go after the sheep. The point here is this is something anyone would do. They would go after the sheep. And um, they would leave the 99 and go after the one. Everyone agrees with that. A lot of ink has been spilled on the way the 99 get treated, and is this something where God we're seeing that God really actually just doesn't care about the people who are here and he only goes after the one? The 99 are really kind of, they're important to the story, but where he actually leaves them is not a crucial factor. Um, Jesus does not fill in every single detail of the stories. They're taken care of. But the point is he goes after the one. He always does. With A shepherd who has lost a sheep goes after it because the sheep is valuable. And that is Jesus' first point. If something valuable is lost, there is a search. There is inevitably a search. You inevitably search for something that's lost. And then he continues. And when, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. As inevitably as there is a search when you lose something valuable, there is a rejoicing when you find something that's valuable. They, this is meant to be laid out in a way that isn't to be argued with. Jesus is basically saying, which of you, when you lose something that's valuable, doesn't go and look for it, and when you find it, you call everybody to you and celebrate. And then he drives his point home. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He takes... What happens here on earth? And he says, how much greater is heaven? That's the type of parable this is. A lot of the parables start with the kingdom of heaven is like, God is like. There's not that direct connection here. The point is to tell a story about how humans interact and say, how much greater is God? We agree this is good. How much more does God do it? So he's saying, we seek for the one sheep and rejoice when we find it, even though we had 99. How much more does God rejoice when one sinner repents? Now, there's question of what you do with the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, one, does God just not care about the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? One, one choice is that Jesus is just being sarcastic here, um, And I do love myself, Jesus, sarcastic Jesus, who shows up in the Bible far more often than we give him credit. But I don't think that's what we have here because we got to remember that righteous person is not a sinless person. A righteous person is a person who has been put in right standing with God. If you have come to Jesus and been cleansed by his blood, you have been brought into a position of righteousness before God. You are in right standing with God. And what he's saying here is, We can take it at face value. There is more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner that repents than over the 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. This does not mean that God has no concern over these 99. And to give you an example, I've been to, I think, one of the weddings of the people in this uh, room right now. And it was a time of great rejoicing. We rejoiced when that wedding happened. We rejoiced over that marriage. But I, my life has been more touched, nothing personal, it's just a short time, by, the, uh, by a number of other marriages in this, um, in this community. But on the day of that wedding, I wasn't sitting here thinking, man, I've really been blessed by the fouché marriage. I should really dampen down my rejoicing on the portnoise. No, I rejoice with the port because this is the event we're rejoicing on. Similarly, my wife is having a child somewhere within the next three to eight weeks. (laughs) And we are going to rejoice in the moment when that child's born, more than we are rejoicing in that moment for our two children that exist. And I say that also still having that wonder, am I ever going to love this new child the way that I love my two children I have currently? This is not to diminish the care for the 99. It is to show the degree of rejoicing that happens in this event of someone returning. And then Jesus continues. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. So I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This should all sound really familiar. This time, instead of kind of describing the Pharisees as a shepherd, he describes them as a woman, which is also funny. And instead of a lost sheep, it's a lost coin. Um, this coin, just to give some context, it's about a day's wages. So if you figure ten of them, uh, it's roughly a paycheck for a person who gets paid biweekly. They've gotten their paycheck and they've lost a tenth of it. Now, again, you have a certainty of a search, but what really gets highlighted in this parable is the diligence of the search. The woman, these room, these houses, this time would have been really darkly lit. They might have had no windows or just a little small window. So she carefully clears everything aside. And then sweeps and cleans until she finds, hears the noise, or finds that one coin that was lost. And then she rejoices with her friends over that coin again, because again, that's what you do when you find something. When you, sorry, when you lose something, you lose something, you seek certainly and you seek diligently. And then when you find it, you rejoice and you rejoice greatly. You rejoice privately and you rejoice publicly. That's what humans do when we lose things of value how much more does that happen in heaven? Now, how do you think the Pharisees and scribes are feeling right now in this conversation? If I was them, I would be boiling over with rage and about ready to interrupt Jesus. Because Jesus has been arguing with metaphors, and I love metaphors in an argument, as my wife um, heartily attest. Uh, I find them useful. They're good. You can take something and kind of distance it from the moment you're, you're talking about right now, and you can look at it from a different angle. You can take one aspect of the thing you're arguing about and highlight it. That's what Jesus has done here. He's taken the discussion about the tax collectors and the sinners, and he's removed it to coins and sheeps. Sheeps. And he's talked about how When you lose those things, you seek for them and you rejoice when you find them. He's pulled it back to give some distance and make the the argument. The problem is, and this is where I would give just free marital advice, be careful when you argue with metaphors. When you take a metaphor, you sand off corners. You remove different aspects of it to hone in on a certain point. And if you do it in a certain way, it just leads to the objection of, we're talking about something completely different, though. You've taken my argument, and you've removed the real crux of it, and you've just turned it into a straw man argument. Jesus, we're not arguing about um, valuable things. We're talking about tax collectors and sinners. You talk about repentance with sheep and coins. I mean, was it a bad sheep, a really nasty coin that came back? I mean, if we're talking about a bloodthirsty sheep that was off making an allegiance with the wolves... To sell out the other sheep, I don't know, whatever a sheep wants out of that? Or if we're talking about a coin that somehow corrupts the other coins and causes them to lose all their value? In that case, no. We wouldn't go search for that, and we wouldn't want to find it. Your two parables are useless. They just drop their mic and walk away at that point. So Jesus tells them another parable, because that's what he does. And he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Let me just continue. And he's, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the, the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. What we have here in this parable, Jesus presents us with two sons and a father. The younger of the two sons comes and asks for his inheritance, his portion of what is going to come to him eventually to be given to him now. And I've heard it taught and I probably would have taught it a while back that essentially what he's asking for is his father to be dead. The Truth is, this is not that outlandish of an idea. Because the way it would have worked then, what's going to happen is eventually the inheritance is going to go out, the older brother is going to get a double portion plus most of the land, and the younger brother is going to have to strike out in some way by his own self. So sometimes the younger sons would come and ask, can I just have some stuff to go start my life so that I'm not starting my life when I'm 55? But it's still not that far off of an idea of how much he is dishonoring his father here. And it's evident in the way his father splits. His father splits a word that is, could be translated his life. It says his property, but the word is bios. It's where we get biology. It is used to refer to life elsewhere in the scripture, somebody's life. It's also used to refer to basically all that a person has. It's the way we talk about making a living for yourself. We have the same kind of language here. When the widow gives her little bit And she gives all that she has. She gives her buy-offs. She gives her living, all that she has to support herself. Similarly, when the woman who has the flow of blood pays the physicians to try and heal her, she gives all that she has. So the idea here is the father takes all that he has. He isn't just taking a pile of assets that's sitting elsewhere. He's he's taking the life he has built up. And he's splitting off a share for the son. And it probably would have worked out to about 22%, about two-ninths. Of the total value of it. He gives it to his son, and his son waits like three days and then just leaves. He has zero desire to stay close. He has zero desire to stay in relationship. He just wants this wealth, and then he wants to be gone. And he goes to a far country. He doesn't even stay near. He goes to a far country, and there he takes this wealth, and he just squanders on a reckless living. Later, his older brother will accuse him of spending on prostitutes, and that doesn't even seem to be disputed. So he just goes and spends it. He's out with the wine, the women. He just blows through a pile of money. And here the Pharisees and scribes have to feel like we're getting closer to a parallel. This is starting to make sense to them. Because, yeah, the tax collectors, you can see the parallels here. A tax collector has an inheritance as a son of Israel. But they've taken that birthright, and they've gone and sold it to the Romans so that they can align themselves with that and abuse their own people. Or the sinners have a faithfulness to God as one of the children of Israel, and they've taken that life, and they've gone and squandered it completely. So the Pharisees and scribes are starting to see a parallel, and that's why Jesus is doing this. He's bringing them back. He's saying, okay, you didn't like my sheep and my, land, my coin? Let's talk about a son who lives recklessly. Do you see your tax collector and sinner here? And the Pharisees are nodding their head, and they're liking the way this is going. Because the next thing that happens is a famine hits. Yay. And then he's penniless, And then he has to go to work for a foreigner. I mean, they're starting to chuckle at this point. And then he has to go to work for a foreigner feeding pigs a dirty animal. And then he's so hungry, the pig food looks good. They're just nodding their head and hoping the guy over there is hearing this, this one. The coin sheep, move them aside. This is a good parable. They like the direction this one's going because it's starting to get to a parallel of these people who have betrayed their family. And Jesus continues. But when he came to himself, when the younger son came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. He came to himself is meant to signify repentance. And these, par- these parables move in parallel. It's a hard sentence to say. And there was repentance in the first two. This is the repentance we're seeing in the second one. This is not meant to give us a robust theology of repentance. We shouldn't expect everybody to reach their wits end feeding pigs and finally come to themselves. There are lots of stories out there like that where the drug user who finally hits rock bottom or the person in prison who accepts Jesus. But this is not supposed to give us an idea that that's the only way. It's not the way that many of us have come to Christ. But we are meant to see that there is a repentance here and there's a repentance that's real. He knows he's done wrong and he knows that his father is good. And he also knows that his father is his only hope. He knows that it would be better to go take whatever his father would be willing to give him than just simply die feeding pigs. And he gets up and goes immediately. He arose. He gets the thought. He comes up the sentence, and he arose and goes. That's even faster than he left his father. There it was just a couple days. Here it's just like, I'm leaving. This is going to kill me. I have to go back home. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father sees him and starts running. And we could have an image like the father just sitting on the porch for years, rocking slowly, waiting for his son. It's really not implied. Um, It seems like the older brother would have thrown that back at his father had that been the case. But what we do have here is there's a moment when the father is walking outside. Years have passed, and he sees a little speck in the distance, and he recognizes that gate. His son has been near to his mind. He's cared about him. He's been concerned. He has not forgotten him. He sees him at a distance, and he recognizes him. You can picture him staring there, watching, going, "Can that be?" And then he comes into focus, and he sees his son's face, and he takes off running. There is a scandal in that. There is cultures where men don't wear shorts after a certain age because it's you are not supposed to expose your legs. Is what little kids do. Similarly, a grown man, a man of esteem in this, was not supposed to expose his legs, and in running, he would have exposed his legs. But he didn't care because he saw his son. There's also a scandal when he is taking a son who has dishonored him, and before his son has said a word, he's embraced him and kissed him. And he's called him my son. And the son starts to say to him, and he doesn't get through his whole speech. I always read that as he gets cut off, like he starts to get to the speech and halfway through his father cuts him off before he can even get to the servant thing. But now I think it's more likely that he's already sensed that things have changed enough. He still isn't sure where he sits. He still knows he wants to say he's sorry. He still wants to recognize the sin he has had against his father. But even in his father's embrace, he's seen that there's more grace here than he expected. And his father... Clothes him. He puts a robe on him. He puts a ring of identification on him. He puts shoes back on his feet. Not having shoes in that age would have been a sign of being destitute. That's when you've retried. Why? You he can't even afford shoes. And he puts shoes on his feet. And then he says, A party must be thrown. And why? For my son, this my son, the one who squandered my money, the one who took my inheritance, the one who wanted nothing to do with me, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The first two parables focused on a searching. There was a searching for something valuable. The shepherd searches for his sheep. The woman searches for her coin. You see a certainty in the first one. You see a diligence in the second one. Has that searching been just dropped in this one? We have to remember what Jesus is arguing for. He's arguing not, he's already said the search is certain. He's already said that it's going to be diligent. Here he's arguing for the value. He hears the the objection of the Pharisees and scribes, and he says, no, these people are valuable. Why? Because a father doesn't disavow his children, a good father. The good father sees what his children have done to him, and when they return, he longs for them to return, and when they do return, he embraces them warmly. They're valuable because a father doesn't let the sin destroy his care for his children. His son is valuable, not because he's good, but because he's his child. And then we see the rejoicing, how great a rejoicing occurs here. This is a culture that doesn't eat meat except for on special occasions. It's not like they have a freezer full of fattened calves. They have a fattened calf, maybe two, and when they kill this one, they got to fatten another one up for another celebration. This is a... A monumental occasion. They are stopping what they're doing, and they're throwing as big a feast as they can because this sun is back. So there we have three parables arguing that God values the lost in spite of any actions on their part to dishonor him or try and take what he's given them in this world and use it their own ways, he still values them. And because he values them, he seeks them diligently and with great certainty. And then when the, because he values them when they're fine, he rejoices greatly and he wants people to rejoice with him. We have three parables that are trying to drive that point home from a different angle. And in this, Jesus has addressed the objections, the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes. He's argued in two parables, yes, you do. God does seek those that are lost. And he's argued in the third, that those who are lost are valuable of being sought because they are God's creation, because they're his people, because they bear his image, because he is their father. He addresses them in that, and he addresses us in that, our and fa- our own Pharisaical tendencies. We all have people that we, not in something that we cannot imagine getting into the kingdom of God, but ones that we probably would be okay if they didn't. That it would probably be a better company if they weren't there. We all have people that we think should be on the outside. And Jesus tells these parables to us for that reason as well. And if Jesus had stopped there, his points would have been made cleanly and clearly. He would have made his points. But it's like he senses the blood in the water. He feels them off balance. They're still reeling, as we would be reeling, from this third parable where this father has embraced the son. and As they're trying to sort this out, Jesus doesn't even pause. And he basically reaches out, grabs them by the robe, and throws them into the story. He throws us into the story because he continues because there's another son. Now, the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the time isn't given in this story, but I always picture this taking place at night. There definitely had to be some sort of lag because they had time to prepare a fattened calf. So what you have here is a the older son's been out in the field. He's the one that's stuck around. He's the one that when his younger son takes his inheritance and goes and just squanders it, this is the one who now bears all the responsibility. He's the one that's been he is in the field. We can presume he's working. The sun's been beating down on him. He's sweaty. He's dirty. He's been hanging out with sheep or whatever else they took care of. He's tired because he's been doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he walks back, and he sees the lights on in his house, and he gets a little closer, and he hears noise. And then he hears music and laughter, and he's wondering what on earth is going on. So he calls a servant you can picture it. There's a bustle of servants moving around, cleaning these things out. He just calls one of them who was refilling wine or doing something else, and he calls him to come aside, and the servant gives the most matter-of-fact answer possible. Your brother's back, so we're having a party. He's been out in the field, and he finds out his brother's... He's, th- he's just going, my brother, that guy? He's back, and we're throwing a party? So He's angry. Or as the scripture reads, but he was angry and refused to go in. He sits there and stands, viewing distance from the door of the party, refusing to go in. And his father comes out to entreat him. He comes out to make a plea with his son. But he answers, he listens to his father's plea, but then he answers his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. You hear the anguish in that? I served you for years. This guy took your money and went to another country. I served you for years. He's holding up a parallel. He devoured your wealth. I obeyed your commands. I have friends you like, good, respectable people. He has prostitutes. And you look at the two of us and you give him the fat and calf. The Pharisees see themselves in this when they look at what Jesus is doing. They have been people who have been seeking to serve God faithfully for years. It's what their life is about. Overly strict, it, but it's what their life is about. They await this kingdom that is to come. They have an inheritance that they expect that they have never disavowed. And I mean, if I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't sympathetic with the older brother here. I mean, remove it from this picture or this setting and picture yourself in some other setting where you have been in a similar way. I mean, who liked group products, projects in school? If you raise your hand, I'm pretty sure you're the person who didn't do work. Because the rest of us did the work while you sat there. And then you got the grade. I'm not better. Or have you ever been the spot where you're the, you've been the faithful friend to a person for years and years and years and they are continually enamored with the newest person in their life who's there for three months, six months and then that person's gone and they're back with you. You're consistent, you're steady but you just feel like they're just constantly going this way and that way. Or a spot where you've been at work and you've worked hard on a project. You've been long and you've been faithful and they have a new hire and this guy is now the golden boy. Or have you ever been the faithful child with a wayward sibling? Where your parents are spending all their time and energy taking care of this. Where they weren't at your sporting event because your sibling was having issues. And you've been there, the faithful one, wondering why you aren't being paid attention to. I mean, my... (laughs) When I was growing up, my sister sucked her thumb and it was hard to potty train. So in both cases, my parents built one of those little charts where she got a day marked off each time. At the end of it, she got some magnificent toy. I stopped sucking my thumb, and I stopped, and I was potty trained like that. In both cases, you know what I got? Nothing, and I'm still bitter 37 years later. And we should see ourselves in this. We are called as we follow Jesus. Jesus has been talking about a life he is to live. And he talks about, if you will come follow me, you need to deny yourself, yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So we come and we follow him. And we deny ourselves. And we labor behind him. We pass up on things in this world. And then there's people who have the deathbed confession. His brother has spent 22% of the family's wealth on prostitutes and booze, probably. He's just squandered it. The family is now roughly four-fifths, oh, sorry, a fifth less wealthy than they were. And now he's come back, which means he's now going to live off the family again. He doesn't have anything. They're throwing a party for him. And this guy has stayed in the fields for years. Working alongside his father, taking care of this land, taking care of what is their inheritance. And now this guy comes back. He holds those parallels up. I obeyed, he devoured. My friends, his prostitutes. I was here, he was in a far country. We should see those parallels because we need to see the truth of his objection, but we also need to see another set of parallels that Jesus is holding up just as stark. The younger son disgraced his father. He went away to a far country. He wanted nothing to do with him. He disgraced his father. The older son is currently disgracing his father. He is standing outside of a party that he is meant to be a co-host, because it is now his household. The younger son didn't want a relationship with his father. He had no interest in it. He wanted the money and the goods, and that was what he wanted, and he took it and left. The older son was present in the house, but shows he had no concern for that relationship either. He doesn't even list it as a benefit from the time. There's no mention of these long years I've been with you while I've done this. It's these long years, I obeyed you. I did what you commanded. I did what I was supposed to. There's no, he also doesn't care for the relationship. The younger clearly sins. The older is doing it right now. I obeyed every one of your commandments, and I happen to be sinning right now. And the father sees the younger son at a distance off and goes out to him. The father sees his older son, a distance off, and goes out to him to entreat him as well. We need to see the parallels here. As we would want to, there is an impulse in me to want to stand where the older brother is on a continuous basis. I need to see the parallels. The Pharisees need to see the parallels here. Because you need to see the parallels so that we hear the Father's words. He says, and he said to him, he says to his son, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He still owns this disobedient son who has shown that he viewed his obedience as a weight, that he didn't care for his relationship, that he was willing to dishonor him the second he thought he wasn't getting his way. He still calls him son. He calls the one son who was unwilling to call this one brother. He says that you have always been with me. He calls out that relationship. I mean, you can picture these two have been working alongside each other, just the two of them for years. They had to have conversations and time spent together, which the father probably loved, and the son just ignores it at this moment. And then he says to him, though, with those two things in mind, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found. And Jesus just leaves it at that. The other two parables have that cap where he talks about how much greater it is in heaven. This one just stops at that sentence. Literally the next line is, he also said to his disciples, and it launches into the parable of the dishonest manager. He just drops this parable right here because the question is, what does the older brother do? As I said, Jesus has reached across and pulled us into this story. Prior to in the first three and a half, two and a half parables, we have been on the outside looking in. We've listened to how God seeks for these things, how He values these people, how He seeks them. And then in the last half of this, in the back half of this last parable, Jesus pulls us in and puts us where we are standing, where the Pharisees and the scribes are standing, and He says, "How will you respond?" The Father comes out to entreat us. we need to see ourselves as the older brother. We need to understand why Jesus seeks those who are lost. And we need to understand that we should rejoice when he he finds them. And to do that, we need to hear what the older brother needed to hear. We need to hear those words of his father. Nothing will cause God to disown his creation. Some might never turn back. There are some sons who might stay in that far country forever. But it's not because the father doesn't care. Everywhere we look and in every face we see, we should see a wayward child of God who God longs to have returned to him. We should see that none of our labor is a service to earn us what we have, we have an inheritance. It is ours and we do not need to labor to earn it because if we think we're laboring to earn this we're going to look at the people who seem to have labored less with envy and resentment we need to see how free this is beyond that we need to hear that ultimate statement son you are always with me and all that i have is yours the benefits of being a child of God are not that someday we get an inheritance. It's not that someday, if we labor long enough in the field, that if we do enough of this, we'll finally, God will get out of the way and we'll get the thing that's coming to us, or He'll finally pay enough attention to us. The ultimate benefit we have is that we live in the household of our Father now. The deathbed conversion doesn't compare. We live there now. They live somewhere else. We should rejoice that they enter this house. But we have to recognize that time spent in the far country is time you're not spending in your father's house. Because ultimately the greatest thing we have is him. We cannot be too become focused on the inheritance. We can't become focused on the parties we don't get to have or have. We can't become anything else. We need to seek the relationship of the Father who is always with us. And we need to know that all that he has is ours. He gives it to us to use as he sees fit. And we are coming into a fullness of an inheritance. But all that we have is his. That has to be our ultimate goal, him. The Pharisees miss this because what they don't see is that in Jesus, the kingdom is coming into the world. They're looking for something, and he's not it. And what they're missing is God is standing in their midst, the one whom they should seek to have relationship with, the one they should seek to be knowing, and all they can do is focus on how he's not doing things the way they want him to do. We miss it. We judge ourselves against each other. We judge people who come to the door. We judge the people who don't come to the door. The call to the older brother is to be like the younger brother. He, too, needs to come to himself. He, too, needs to come to repentance. We need to come to repentance on a daily basis And recognize where we are acting like an older brother. And return to our Father. Go back into the house and rejoice with our Father who is constantly rejoicing. And this is where we draw near to Jesus. We see the value we have in Him, we see the value of Him in seeking the value that he does seek because we were lost. We see the value in him rejoicing because he rejoiced over us when he found us. And we set aside our judgment and our jockeying position and happily take our positions as just children of a loving father. Because you, like me, were a sheep, you were a coin, and you've been both brothers. In all cases, we have a father who seeks us and longs for us to be present, who sees value in us as his child and will bring us into his house. So we get to rejoice. Amen.